And then we'll have to get a selfie as well. Okay. I'll have to stand on tiptoes. I could always bend over, that's fine. <laughs> Won't be the first time. <laughs> Won't be the last. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Are You Sitting Uncomfortably? with me, Gemma Greaves, founder of Nurture and Cabal. This is a new podcast that features courageous storytellers who are comfortable with getting uncomfortable. It's no secret that creating safe spaces to talk openly and share our personal stories has become a bit of an obsession of mine. So why uncomfortable? Well, simply, I don't feel we have enough of life's difficult conversations. We tend to avoid getting uncomfortable. We leave so much left unsaid. And let's be frank, you don't grow or learn anything new by staying in your comfort zone. I honestly believe powerful storytelling is a catalyst for change. So love that I get to chat to incredible guests who all have a story and who are all ready to sit uncomfortably. So let's begin. Today's guest is Chris Maples, officially known as the tallest man in the London media world, although this is unverified. Chris started his career on the Hangar Lane roundabout, and after five formative years at Channel 4 that he describes as his university years, he spent time in TV, radio and outdoor advertising before making the move into digital, first with Microsoft And then with Spotify, the thing that he's probably best known for. And then he went on to run a film school and a gaming business. It's been quite busy. Until recently, Chris was leading auto traders advertising business, first through COVID and then through a worldwide new car shortage. He is a regular industry events and perhaps most memorable was when Chris co-hosted the comedy review, The Big Mistake Ad Week and accidentally sung with bands at multiple industry events. What I want to know is how do you accidentally sing on stage? Uh, It's never my intention going into an (laughs) awards ceremony to get up and sing with a band. It's like, I don't know, there's a tractor beam that happens, which, you know, for me is, I'm actually pretty comfortable in that space. I think I make the band really uncomfortable. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) What I do know is Chris is an absolute legend in our industry. Welcome, Chris. It's great to have you here on my prickly chair. It's nice to be here. Thank you. So I need to ask, Chris, are you sitting uncomfortably? I mean, I am sitting uncomfortably. At six foot nine, I'm, I'm always sitting uncomfortably. But yeah, I'm prepared to go into some pretty uncomfortable stuff. Six foot nine. I know, right? So you really are the tallest. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, it's unverified, but I don't believe anyone that says they're taller. I'm, I'm with you there. So like many others, I read your recent LinkedIn post that you started with, this is a post I never thought I would write. So I got in touch Mm -hmm. pretty much straight away. I think was one of the first to leave a comment, which now has something like 400 comments. Here you are. So could we start with, for our listeners, what you actually shared on that LinkedIn post? Yeah, and I think it's important to say that the reason I started with, here's a post I never thought I'd share, or whatever it was I said, I never thought I'd write, was that, I didn't really, I never, never expected to be here. I shared a post that over, I said three months, actually over recent times, I've had a, uh, had a kind of complete breakdown. This happened really quickly, but has been developing for a long time. And when I talk about breakdown, what it meant was 
it was as though I forgot how to function. I couldn't, I think I said it in the post, I'd forgotten how to be a person. I didn't know how to be a, a dad, a brother, you know, like a son. <clears throat> and so uh, I thought an awful lot of people knew, close friends, family, obviously they've been helping me through it. But I thought I would share it on LinkedIn, primarily because I need to work. I need to, and I, I, I hadn't figured out how to, how to get back doing that. And I thought, well, this, this is as good a way as any. I certainly didn't do it in any kind of altruistic way to go, oh, I'm going to create a movement now. So it's to get back out there. It, sort of something to write. Yeah. I've not, I haven't done anything for a few months. Mm. I'm sort of something to write. But it, it turned out to be enormously cathartic and enormously surprising outpouring of love and support that's still really humbling now. So I'm enormously glad I wrote it. I really wish I hadn't had to write it. I'd much rather not be in this position. But yeah, that's what it was. I, you know, I basically kept, publicly came out and said I've had a breakdown. And the support that you've received in the comments, and I read some of them again today, you know, over and over, people saying how brave, how honest, it's what we should be doing as, as humans, as leaders, as opposed to having to pretend that everything's okay. I mean, it was, I'm assuming, I mean, just reading it myself, it almost brought tears to my eyes. So I'm assuming it was pretty overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, even before I had a breakdown, I'm always just about on the verge of tears. I'm quite an emotional guy anyway. So, um, yes, it, were, uh, it, it is, it's been unbelievably humbling and at times overwhelming as well. And, you know, it was never my intention to become the, and I'm, I, and I'm absolutely not saying this in any kind of reductive or flippant way. I never wanted to be the poster child for having a breakdown in this industry. But I guess if some good can come of this, if it means that we can talk more openly about anxiety and depression and addiction and mental health generally, I guess in an intimate, specific way, as opposed to in the abstract, then that is a huge positive. Yeah, I, I personally think, and I, I said to you before, and I think I commented this, that in, in sharing your story and being so vulnerable and open, I'm sure it's going to encourage others to share their stories. So, so what's your story? What, what happened? Yeah, I don't really know, enough, in all honesty. It's been building for a while, and I think I've been unhappy for a very long time without knowing quite what that means and without really fully understanding it. I have felt, and the irony is not lost on me given the name of this podcast, I have felt uncomfortable in my own skin I guess for most of my life, I mentioned in the, in the LinkedIn post that I'm I'm writing a, a blog about that and about the sort of, you know, it's called how to have a breakdown without even trying. So I felt like, and, and a lot of this is, is, you know, working with a therapist trying to understand myself. I felt like I'd been playing the part of Chris Maples for a very long time as opposed to actually being me. You know, I'm 52, I've got four children. I split up with the mother of my youngest two children during lockdown. That was a right laugh. Um, so we had, you know, we continued to live together for nine months. I think in various ways, haven't felt like I fitted in, in lots of areas. And I think all of this insecurity, low self-esteem, increasingly filled up my tank, if mm. that's a, without any, any other sort of positive outlet to reinforce positive things in me. 
I became increasingly uncomfortable thinking about what my life looked like. I always thought it was the it was the breakup of my marriage that really was the trigger point. It was a big contributing factor, but it wasn't the only thing. I couldn't I couldn't see what my future looked like anymore. And that's quite a hard thing to come to terms with when uh, I think I'd known what my future looked like for a while. And suddenly I, like, it's not like, oh, the future's looking differently. It's, it's a bit like this brick wall. Like, I couldn't see past where I was. And in feeling overwhelmed by these feelings more and more, I tried to deaden those feelings. Mm. And you do that by drinking, using drugs, just disappearing, not wanting to see people that you love anymore your world becomes much smaller part of that is shame you know I was not only was I I was humiliated and embarrassed about how I was feeling and how I had got to this place and what I was doing to try and forget how I was feeling so there's this huge amount of overwhelming self-loathing that takes place as well all of which is you know just means you go into this massive spiral of and eventually like I just couldn't function didn't know what to do. And when you realised you couldn't function, you reached out for help or people were around you to... Uh, the two things happened, really. I think, one, people around me got involved and went, we've got to try and fix this. And I did that in two ways. I, I, I saw a therapist that I still, I still see her now, and she's great. I'd, I'd had therapy... When my previous marriage split up, I had about two years of therapy. So I kind of... can I sort of know what's going on mm. And I'm aware of it's therapy that wasn't, a, ah, this has happened. There was no big reveal. I kind of knew what was going on. But that's definitely helped because it helps you sort of contextualise things, helps you compartmentalise a bit, I think. Helps you realise you're not the worst person in the world, which there's definitely a time when you think you are. Well, all you need to do is read the comments <laughs> on the LinkedIn post, right? The uh, love for you and in obviously, the industry. Huge. Like, I don't really think I'm the worst person in the world, but sometimes you think, Jesus, how has this happened? I started attending uh, uh, Cocaine Anonymous meetings just to see whether, well, for a start, a bit like LinkedIn, you get this enormous support of strangers. is amazing. So I started doing that to understand whether that was the problem that had led to the breakdown or... Addiction is different for lots of different people, I think. And, uh, it, you know, what? it's definitely been um, uh, a factor. But the biggest factor that's come out through all of this is that I've been unhappy for an incredibly long period of time. And I've never really either confronted it or understood it. So uh, and I think I described it to you earlier on. It felt like when it happened eventually, <laughs> you imagine a balloon being pumped up. The balloon is a magical thing, right? Imagine you're a kid, a balloon's a magical thing. So as it's being pumped up, it's magic, 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 and then bang, then it's rubbish. Literally like that. That's what it felt like to me. I'd been uh, either faking it to feeling okay or there was enough going on that made me feel all right for a long, long time, and then suddenly, bang, I wasn't. And that change happened really quickly. The unhappiness had obviously been there for a very long time. Some of the behaviours I was using to mask it, but it had gone on in different times in different ways. But suddenly I was unable to mask how I was feeling. And at that point, I felt paralysed. 
It's really, uh, I was going to say it's really surprising. Like it's like it happens quick. Mm. That's what I found. This is whilst the reason behind what has happened to me has clearly been there for a long time. The deterioration, man, it happens quickly. And that is like it takes your breath away. And suddenly you're like, how the hell has this happened? How's my life falling apart? And I'm attempting to try and rebuild it now. The amount of pain and hurt and misery I've caused lots of people is real. Partly because you, you know, the way I would do it, I would just go missing. I would literally not answer anything. And I would know that people were looking for me. And it's not that I didn't care. I wasn't equipped to sort of face up to it. Yeah. And I'm a I'm a reasonably intelligent guy. Like, you know, I've you know, I've lived the life. I've been able to put one foot in front of the other for pretty much most of my life. And suddenly the simplest things I didn't know how to do anymore. It's like the rug was swept from you in a sense. Uh, it's like my legs were taken away from me and I've got like enormous legs. And suddenly they were taken away from me. And I felt, I'm sure like many people who have gone through this before, like I felt pathetic. I felt embarrassed. I felt humiliated. I was ashamed. I felt pain. I was confused. I was, uh, the way I was, I was lost. Like I couldn't, I, I, I literally didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to function. It's all I could do, you know, to eat and go to the bathroom. Like I couldn't do anything, and in that work, and that time, you think no one else feels like this. And what at the time when you, when your friends want to help you, at the time when your family are there to support you and all of that, it's exactly the time when you don't want to see any of them. And so I just found my world getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And when I would go missing, it would. Mostly I'd be on my own. Quite often I'd be in the company of complete strangers. Uh, and in, in the company of strangers, then you can just pretend to be someone else. Yeah. That must have been hard for your, your family, your kids. Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, I'm... Um, I'm still trying to rebuild a relationship with my oldest boy. Uh, it's hard for all of them. I think the two younger ones, excuse me. Chris, at any point, if you need a moment, you just say. I mean, the two younger ones, no, daddy's been unwell. They don't know the specifics of it. It's hard for all of them. <laughs> you know, as a parent, you're there for your kids. And when you struggle, that's the dynamics change, right? That's not that's sort of, that's what kids sign up for. Yeah, it's been hard for my my mother and father as well. You know, they're, you know, my mum in particular, she's nearly 80. I don't want to be a burden to her. I don't want her to worry about me, but she does. I don't want to cause her pain, but you do, you know, that's sort of what happens. And it will be a continual source of regret in my life. The, and not just to my family as well, to close friends, uh, you know, loved ones, the amount of pain you cause them. I never intend to cause anyone any upset. It's a byproduct of what's happened. And I'll 
spend the rest of my life trying to make it up to people. It's been a right laugh. Honestly, all I want to do is come across the studio and give you a big hug. <laughs> I mean, that's almost certainly going to make me cry more. Which is um, why I'm not. <laughs> Afterwards. Was there a moment when you, you tried to reach out, tried to get help to, to be found? Yeah. I, I put in the podcast three months ago. Podcast? S- you mean the, the... Sorry, sorry, sorry. On the LinkedIn post, I put, yeah. I put in mm. three months ago. Yeah. That isn't like just an arbitrary date. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the day when I turned up at my parents' house early one morning and said, I've got a real problem. And that's when I started getting help or started considering that I did need to have some help. That wasn't the end of the going missing or the end of the the worst of it. You know, that that, that really came to a head over Christmas and the early part of January. But I definitely realised, and it's that's the other thing, whilst it happens really quickly, and I would much rather be sat here talking to you about my celebrated career or, you know, how things are going brilliantly, but, you know, that wouldn't I, I, make, this is That wouldn't make boring. the best podcast. I know. <laughs> we can do exactly. that any time. Everyone knows that. But um, You've had a glittering career, that's for sure. I was actually talking about, like, an imaginary career that I've not had yet. Um, um, whilst it happens fast... There is part of you that knows you need help. Mm. Or rather, there is part of you that knows this isn't normal. Mm. Like, it's not like it's not rational behaviour. And, you know, you are aware of that. Not necessarily in the moment, but you are aware of it. But eventually, you just become exhausted. Oh, sorry, at least I did. You, I just became like... I, I, I like I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Someone's got to, anyway, and that's hopefully, and, and I am without wanting to sound like an American talk show host. Like I am on a long journey. I would love to say every day is better than last. It's definitely not. There's definitely still ups and downs. There's definitely days where I don't want to get out of bed. There's days where I don't want to talk to people. But I have fewer of those days now, I guess, and hopefully the gaps between them are bigger. And can you be honest when you have those days with the people around you? Actually, I need, I need time out. I, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to get out of bed. Or, or do you have to try and pretend? Uh, um, you probably could be. I probably am not. Mm-hmm. You just don't answer the phone. But in a different way. Uh, sort of then when I go missing, I just... I mean, I watch a lot of Netflix. So do um, I. What's your favourite show? Uh, I'm really into. Well, I say I'm really into. <laughs> I can't watch anything that isn't light-hearted. I just like my mind isn't cope for it yet. So, one of the actually, this is tip for anyone out there who's going through who may not realise they're going through a breakdown yet. One of the factors that is potentially a sort of red flag is that you rewatch over and over things that you've seen before. Apparently, because you're comfortable, there are no surprises to it. I am obsessed with The West Wing. Absolutely obsessed with The West Wing. And The West Wing is eight series, mm. 24 episodes a series, or each episode is 45 minutes. Eight series, seven series. Yeah, I think I'm only halfway through it after all these years. I've watched, <laughs> I've watched it all, I reckon, 15 times. Wow. Continually. And there was a long period of time that was the only thing I would watch. I mean, I love it so much. We're doing a whole other interview about politics. I love it so much. Let's not. Um, <laughs> can do that on someone else's pod. <laughs> but uh, I was just re-watching, re-watching, re-watching that. 
So, you know, sorry, going back to your question, those days I'd sit and just watch telly and be and fall in and out of sleep. And did you or do you, when you have those days, appreciate that this is one day, but tomorrow's a new day? Yes and no. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I'm a pretty rational person, so I know that I know that I know that I can function. I know that I can talk to people. I know that I'm a bit I'm able to do things. I have, you know, without wanting to sound like Liam Neeson, I have a certain set of skills. You know, I know I can do things, but in those days, you probably forget that a little bit. Yeah, I, I mean, you just feel. I mean, I I, I feel exhausted. And what I've realised is I have felt exhausted for a really long time. And I think that is about the amount of emotional energy you're expending to try and be okay. What I've realised is okay doesn't come naturally to me. Mm. And part of that, I guess, is not quite being comfortable in my own skin, not quite you know, being riddled with low self-esteem and insecurities and which I have, I think, for an enormous part of my life, never really fitting in. I've not talked to anyone about this, a lot of this stuff before, actually. Certainly, like I said, I didn't want to be the the poster child for this. You're the first person I've really talked to publicly about this stuff, apart from the LinkedIn post. Well, we're honoured. Thank um, you, Chris. I realised, well, I'm beginning to realise, I think, that just being, just trying to be okay has taken quite a lot of energy. And so working on being comfortable with myself is probably a really big thing. I don't know how far down that that path I am. I realised a long time ago, and I think it was actually Ruby Wax that I first heard say it, it's okay not to be okay. And until that point, I always thought you had to try and be happy and great and, and feeling comfortable. Whereas actually, when I realised that, that... It's okay not to be okay. And actually, most people you'll meet are facing some kind of battle, right? But we often feel we've got to hide it. Yeah. I mean, I. it's interesting you say that. You know, until recently I was working at Auto Trader, and I, you said in the intro, I was there during um, the beginning of lockdown. Mm. So, that, you know, I mean, I had the triple whammy, right? We had lockdown, which we didn't know what was going on. No. My marriage ended, and we were still living together for nine months. And I turned 50. So there's a, I mean, brilliant year. 2020 is not, I mean, I mean, the Queen thought she had an Anna Terribla. She wanted to try living, walking a mile in my shoes. Um, so that was a big year, <laughs> you know, and I was leading the team. And by the way, it was a team that barely knew me. I'd been there as a consultant a few months and suddenly I was leading this team and we were in lockdown, you know, on a sort of virtual call. I said, you know what? I'm really aware that this is unbelievably hard. And I, and I actually just said, look, I don't care about work. I care about you. You do what you need to do to get through the day. I really don't care about the job. No one's going to die if an ad placement doesn't go out. But <laughs> you know what? We're going through this and it's really hard. And I, I set up a session and said, right, let's, um, if it's possible, just give me one thing that's positive and one thing that's negative about this. And I said, I'll start. For me, the negative thing is I, and the vast majority of people in my team didn't know. I said, my wife and I have separated and we're living together and that's unbelievably hard. And the positive was how the team had come together. I'm not trying to be flippant here, but I really thought in the misery top trumps, like I'd, I was going to win that. And of course, when people are sharing their stories, you realise everyone's going through stuff. Yeah. And it was horrible. So I'd always known it was okay to not be okay. When you're in the 
when you're in the eye of the storm like I am, though, you, like I said, I'm a rational guy, but you don't think rationally. Yeah. You think, oh, you feel like you missed the lesson somewhere at how to do life. That's how it feels. I feel like everyone else has got it sorted. Even though, normally, you know that's not the case. In that moment, you think, I don't know how to figure this out, but everyone else seems to have got it sorted. So I want to dig a bit deeper in terms of what actually really makes you uncomfortable. And you started with talking about being you and feeling comfortable in your own skin. When when do you think that, that started? Hmm. Well, I know that after I did my O-levels, for you youngsters amongst you, that's what GCSEs are. After I did my O-levels... <laughs> I did GCSEs, just want to point that out. That's what I said amongst <laughs> you. Um, I changed school because actually my school was closing. And I remember going into the new school to do my A-levels and literally saying to myself, I'm going to reinvent myself. And I reinvented myself as confident, Chris. By the way, like this is the... You know, this is thousands of pounds of therapy and loads of post-rationalisation. But already you go, oh, okay. It's not like you were comfortable just going in. You know, at my previous school, I'd gone through a bit of bullying. Mm. I'm not not trying to make a big deal out of that. I think everyone goes through a bit of that at times. Some people have it significantly worse than I did. But I definitely wasn't comfortable. So I went, I'm going to be confident, Chris. So definitely then... And then there's been a few moments where you go, oh, you really, I didn't really feel like I ever fitted in. So I'm a working class kid who was born in a council house in the east end of London. And my parents did okay. And we kind of moved on and and sort of slightly up. And they've had their own challenges. So I started playing golf, which obviously is a pretty middle class sport. And I moved to a, a private members club. And I went to a Really shitty state school. In fact, it was so bad it closed down. But I remember playing golf with this guy, and this was a pretty well-to-do club in Hertfordshire, a place called Brookman's Park. And I remember this guy saying to me, what school are you at? And I remember thinking, no one's ever asked me what school I'm at. They've normally said, what school do you go to? And the at made me think, oh, I think he thinks I go to a public school somewhere, like a fee-paying school. Mm. And I was like, oh, fuck, I don't. This is, And I just went, ah, oh, St Mary's, it was a little school, you won't have heard of it. It's obviously a cob mm. 10 miles away or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I definitely, so there, I remember then thinking, oh, I'm not quite like everyone else here. And then I got a place to study uh, economics at Plymouth and I bottled it a week before I went. I said to my mum, I don't want to go. And that was because I didn't know anyone that had ever been to university. And so... I started, I ended up working in media from the age of 19. On the Hanging Lane Roundabout? On the Hanging Lane Gyratory System at TSMS, which was the first ITV sales house. And, you know, I'm still in touch with a number of people from that world today, and they're amazing people, and I love my time there. So that's why you described that time as, as kind of your university? Well, I moved, uh, after two years, I moved to Channel 4. Channel 4, Channel yeah. 4 was my university. Mm. But, but the point was, everyone, I'd, everyone I worked with had gone to university. And I hadn't gone to university, so I didn't quite feel that I fitted into that gang either. And I am absolutely aware that all of this is going on in my head. Mm. No one else is really thinking that, although, you know, there's always people that at times you open up about this stuff and then they know exactly when to, you know, when to dig at you and take mm. the piss out of you at times. And so I yeah, guess I didn't, they... f- I didn't feel, you know, 
again, I didn't feel particularly comfortable then. Mm. And then over time, you know, the more, I don't know, I don't want to describe it as success, but, I, you know, the more my career developed and grew and I, I took on broader and broader and bigger roles. Why can't you describe it as success? Because, you know, I've known you for many years and you've had a very successful career. Oh, uh, just, you know. Why can't you own that? Uh, well, I sort of can. I don't know. Probably could have been more successful. I, anyway, I just, as my career went up, I probably increasingly felt like I don't deserve this. Am I a bit of a, am I faking it? Which is why I talk about playing the role of Chris Maples. And it's probably why over time, you know, I attempted stand-up comedy and you, you touched on the, the thing at Adweek. I can do that. I'm all right at that stuff. I know I can do that. I can speak in front of a thousand people and I'm pretty good at that stuff. You are, I've seen you. Is that because that's a bit of a performance? I can also play the part of a guy that runs a business because I can, weirdly, the insecurity never, I never ever felt like I can't do the job. Some of the things I'm proud of is I left the media industry to go and run a university. I ran a film school for two years. I wouldn't have done that if I had insecurities about my ability to do a thing. Yeah. I'm just not very good at being me, I think. And, uh, you know, hopefully I'll get better at that. I'm working on it. I feel like you're working on it and you're... Yeah, and and obviously you've known me for years, so I sort of am me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is where I think you're really being you because you're admitting actually... I do have insecurities that have deeply... Whereas a lot of us don't feel we can admit that, which we should be able to. I mean, I you know, I've done years of therapy before this current phase of therapy. And for anybody who hasn't had therapy, like, I think it's amazing. But, you you know, you learn. There's a lot of consistency and a lot of similarities in people. A lot of people are riddled with insecurities. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people have low self-esteem. And I think that's probably where I got to. And Mm. I got there pretty quickly. (laughs) So you just going back, you yeah. talked about when you made yourself into confident, mm. Chris. Do you think you took that role into the different areas of your life? Yeah, certainly from a professional perspective, yes. I am naturally, I think, I'm a pretty funny guy, so like I can lean into that. I think I can hold a good story. I think I can be reasonably entertaining, so... Being confident, Chris, that, that helps all that. Mm. We've talked earlier on about sitting on the terrace at the Groucho, sitting on the terrace at So Hours. I can do that stuff pretty yeah, well. Yeah. Uh, and I like I like people's company. But you're less into networking. Yeah, I, do, I, I don't like, hi, I'm here and I want to sell you this thing. I can't bear it. I actually quite like in those moments being quite real. But I think many aspects of the job... Or my career, uh, I've been able to be confident, Chris. It's also important to say, like, I am pretty confident. I'm not constantly crouching down in a ball in the corner thinking I can't do any of it. Like, there's a lot of this stuff I can do. I can do the jobs and I can I can do the management of teams and I can inspire people and I can do all of that stuff. So I think learning from an early age to fake things has probably helped in some ways in doing that because there has been an element where you... you I am confident of doing things and I am prepared to make big changes and I am prepared to do big things. But there's still an in, uh, part of me inside that just feels like I just don't belong. 
this uh, you shouldn't be doing this or you don't deserve it or something and that's the bits I'm still trying to work through what do you think you've learnt from your most uncomfortable moments I mean look I'm probably going through my most uncomfortable moment now obviously there's been a whole, a whole bunch of other minor uncomfortable moments in my life but if I've learned anything recently is that you're not alone and that has been I'm going to well up again now like that is enormously powerful yeah it is um, I think obviously the reason we're we've known each other for years the reason we're talking today is about what's what's going on recently and uh, like I said to you I didn't post that at all as a kind of the, like the beginning of a movement Man, the response has been overwhelming, and mm. I don't. I what I've learned, I think, is there's a lot of love around, and the there people is. are there to support you, and there are people that are walking through this as well, and you haven't always got to stand up straight. Someone will carry you a little bit, and I think from that, there's a conversation to be had around shame as well, because part of this is like I've been ashamed about lots of things, and. There is no shame in what's happened. There isn't. There is no shame in the way that I've tried to deal with it. I have caused enormous amounts of pain and hurt and whatever else. There's no one hurting more than me, I guess, in this situation. And um, and you didn't do it intentionally uh, either. I, like, I never set out to really hurt people. No. That was just a byproduct of it. How do you approach dealing with a sense of shame or freeing yourself from it? I wanted to get it a bit deeper here because I think listeners will really resonate. I've had the trifecta of I'm ashamed that I feel like this. I'm ashamed the way that I've behaved whilst going through this. It's actually the, the quad factor. I'm ashamed of the way that it has affected other people. And I am ashamed of the things that I have done to try and mask the way I'm feeling. Whether that's alcohol, whether it's drugs, whether it's just disappearing, whether it's whatever it is. So shame has been a big part of this for me. And maybe shame has been a big part of my life forever. I don't know. I'm still on that journey. I'll figure that out, hopefully. Or maybe I won't. But I certainly don't know how to, how to put it behind me. I wish I did. If I could bottle that, I'd make a fortune. I know a lot of my behaviour. I know a lot of my thoughts. I spend a lot of time in my own head. It's not a good place to be. I know a lot of these things aren't rational. When you are in your darkest place is when you think your darkest thoughts. And in the moments of light I have, I know that this isn't rational. And so there's nothing to be ashamed of. Have I acted badly? Have I done things that I'm not proud of? Absolutely. Did I do it deliberately to hurt? Did I do it deliberately to cause upset? Did I do it deliberately because I didn't give a fuck about people? Never. I did it because in that moment it felt like the only way to put one foot in front of the other. Um, I don't know if that's answered your question or not. I don't know how to deal with it. I'm going to go slightly deeper into this. I talked about going to a Cocaine Anonymous meeting, which I did. I've been to multiple of them, actually. And we touched on addiction a little bit. I, I think addiction is different to people. I know that I was using alcohol and drugs to mask how I was feeling at an, increase, at an increasing rate. Listening to some of the stories that people talk about there and some of the things that they have done, and then seeing how that community just go yeah 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 
doesn't matter. Let's move on. Let's, there's no shame. People deal with things in different ways and most people are good people and they don't do it to deliberately hurt. Your actions aren't deliberate. So true. But uh, if I've learned anything is that I do not want to waste the... Like, I don't want to waste the rest of my life. If there is an opportunity for me to do some good from what has happened, then that would be that would be a terrible thing to waste. I've had about, I don't know how many comments, but, you know, there's just enormous amounts of comments. Like I said, it's really overwhelming, and I've, I've responded to everyone, I think. Yeah. And I found this phrase that kept coming to mind was much love. A, as a kind of, look, I'm sending you much love as well, but also that was what I was feeling constantly, like this overwhelming amount of... Not, not just love. There was, it, there was like an abundance of love. Yeah. I'm just going to go off on a slight tangent here. When my my oldest boy was born, you have this overwhelming amount of love for for your child. Your first, you got, you know, you've, I always say to people the biggest change in your life is going from naught children to one child. Yeah. Because the amount of love I had for him was overwhelming. <laughs> And when my wife at the time was then pregnant with my second child, I was terrified because I didn't want to divide the love I had for him amongst two children. And what you (laughs) really... What you realise is that love multiplies. And that's what I have felt. In the last, uh, sorry, in the last couple of weeks, is that there's enormous amounts of love out there, and it multiplies. If you need to take a moment at any point. No, no, it's fine. Water. Fine. I it like, does. I like and talking when I'm crying. It's fine. <laughs> it does, Chris. And um, the the love for you that we were all saying is just there is so much love out there for you, and it was like a groundswell of support, and it was so beautiful to see and the things that people were saying about you humble kind generous you always give someone time which is really lovely to see and I know that we were saying you know we were talking about the fact that you just thought everyone gave everyone time but actually you're realizing that's not the case yeah I have this feeling that goes through every aspect of my life and that is you can either believe in me or you can believe in us. Mm. And I believe in us. I always have done. I believe in if I've got a thing and you haven't, then we've got one between us and we'll figure the rest out tomorrow. Yeah. And by the way, I'm almost certainly poorer for that. I'm almost, <laughs> but I, there's a brilliant phrase. Sorry, I'm going to go back to the West Wing. Josh Lyman uses when, uh, I don't know, a Latin American country about to default on their debt. And he says, if your neighbour's house is on fire, you don't negotiate the charge for the, for the hose. You put the fire out. I love that. And that's you. Uh, well, <clears throat> I sort of hope if you've got the chance to help someone, why wouldn't you? I think I've always felt like that. And it was not, obviously at a time of uh, difficulty for me, it was nice to hear people sort of remind me of that. Because yeah. we all go through this as well, right? I'm not suggesting that I am unique in any way, but there are times when you think you're the worst person in the world. And it's nice for people to say, oh, no, I remember you did that thing. Oh, yeah. You're okay. It's quite quick to write off our industry as being cynical and 
money grabbing and capitalist and all of that stuff. And actually, there's an awful lot of amazing people around. Yeah. And all barring two of my very best friends in the world I've met in this industry and seeing people just go, you can lean on me if you like. Yeah. You know, it's pretty amazing. So to not do something with that, I think would be a real missed opportunity. And, but I don't know what that is yet. I was about to say, have you got any idea no, what no, that is? I, um, there is something. I'm working on a couple of ideas, but I, I would love to... I'd love everyone else to feel what I've felt recently. Yeah. I don't know how to do it, but uh, that's what I'm going to try and try and a lot. And also, by the way, like I've got to do some work, but you know, yeah. keep the lights on. I've got to keep the lights on <laughs> exactly. But, I, but I, there is something that's really important to me about what has happened and how people who have helped me, how I can help more people. I also think that you're creating a space where others feel that they'll be able to share as well and I think bit coming on this podcast for a start to your point about it'll be a waste not to do anything I think just coming on this pod and telling your story mm. will already be helping people and will be already helping people to know they're not alone which is what you you've said is we're not alone in this and we shouldn't have to hide yeah I also absolutely I, I, I just want to advocate for people to do whatever makes them feel the best. Yeah. Uh, and so if it happens to be talking openly and publicly, great, go for it. If it just means that you talk to one person, that's fine. As, mm. Or if it just means that you accept and you understand and you, you look on life help or whatever, that, that's fine. I mean, I absolutely didn't think I was going to cry as much doing this. So... I, like I said, I, I I came on here obviously because I love you, but also because love you too. Like I'm, I've learned to be pretty comfortable with my failings. I guess, ironically, given the name of your podcast, <laughs> um, but it doesn't mean everyone else has to be. But if people feel better and it, it gives people the opportunity or the or the air to breathe in order to share their own stuff then that's great. If you can help, you know what? Like I said, if you can help one person, why wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And you're reminding me of uh, a question that I always ask in meetings. And when I do, people always go, oh, my goodness. And it's, how can I help you? And people are visibly shocked. And it, But what it does is it changes the whole dynamic of that conversation from being something that might be quite transactional to actually developing that real meaningful connection. And I think we could do more of that and ask people, how can I help you? It's really interesting, right? That's not a learned behaviour by you. That's just who you are. I think I'm the same. Mm. I'm also more interested in hearing about someone else. Totally. Then I, I, ironically, given I'm on a podcast talking about the breakdown I've just had, like I'd much rather talk about something else. I'd much rather listen to some, someone else's stories. But the idea of what can I do to help... If I can help you, of course, like a, yeah, why wouldn't I help you? I mean, I'm not very practical, so if you've got a flat tie, do it yourself. But, you know, I mean, like, <laughs> if I can possibly help in any way. And one of the things, I guess, I remember uh, people were always surprised if I knew, sorry, just go back to Joe, if I knew senior people, I would always take someone from the team along to meet them. And I'd say, well, then you know them. I already know them. So, yeah. you know, I can introduce you and then you know them and then you can have a relationship yourself. Like, and people say, wow, you're not protective of those. Like, that as an example, those relationships. Like, God, no. 
No. No, not in the slightest, no. Love yeah. multiplies. Yeah, you want to help people be better. Yeah. And be better than you are, ideally, as a leader, right? Absolutely. That's what I say to my children. Yeah, and my job's not to be your mate. My job's to make you better than I am. Yeah. Let's yeah. be clear, that's not a difficult job at the moment. but. <laughs> well, I'm sure they're going to listen to this and be incredibly proud of you. So why do you think it's important for brands and leaders and people and humans to get to get uncomfortable? I mean, I think uncomfortable is about being real. You want to experience new things, right? You don't know where the good stuff is. Then go do the difficult thing. Go do the uncomfortable thing. You don't know where that's going to where that's going to lead you to. I've always like put myself out there and then seeing where it goes to. I always describe running a film school as the thing I'm most proud of and probably the thing I failed the hardest at. The reason for that is I would not have changed the thing I did then. I just I couldn't get to couldn't get it to do the things I wanted it to do. But people said to me, Jesus, how did you go from working in media to running a university? And I, you know, don't know. Go and do it and see what happens. Yeah. So go I do think it. And I'm enormously proud of it. And what an experience. It made me a better person. So, yeah, I think that's why uncomfortable is a good thing. I love that. Just go do it. Go do it. Go it's the worst it. that can happen. No one's going to die. Exactly. And I think that is a perfect place to end. So thank you so much, Chris. Not at all. Thank you. Apologies for all the tears. <laughs> Never apologise. Never apologise. It's a good thing. Thank you. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. And we are genuinely honoured that you chose this pod to to tell your story so thank you well thank you for letting me babble on about it I really appreciate it no babbling at all and actually I genuinely believe you sharing your story will help others and will make people even more proud of you if that's possible thank you I'm Gemma Greaves and Are You Sitting Uncomfortably is a fresh air production and the producers are Izzy Clark and Clara Kavanagh We're relatively new on the scene, so if you enjoyed this podcast, then please do me a massive favour. Follow us, recommend us, and if you're feeling particularly kind, which hopefully you are after this pod, do leave us a review. We love the reviews, and the bigger the following, the more opportunity we have to have the best guests. And I want to have these uncomfortable and important conversations with incredible people like Chris. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.